The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are, we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe in the sunshine here at the Beautiful back. day. Fantastic day. Thank God with all these floods. <clears throat> yeah. So. Um, now, you've had a busy morning, Stephen, terrorising uh, company chairman. Which company chairman have Chairman, have you been terrorising well, with with written questions? Your, right? your, your scheduling for our get together is quite annoying because October twenty is one of the busiest days of the year for AGMs. So if I didn't have a date with you, I'd have been physically at the points bet AGM, getting stuck into them. Then I would have gone to Aurora, which neither of which offered online questions. But thankfully, the beautiful hybrid AGM meant that I was able to sit at home for an hour and a half this morning and lob about 40 questions, written questions at uh, the LIC, Diversified United Investments, the insurance broker Steadfast, Magellan Financial Group, Transurban, and there's one other which I've even forgotten, uh, Perpetual, that's right. So um, as we sit here across the country, all these questions are being read out by some corporate flunky while we sit here and enjoy coffee and shoot the breeze and <laughs> admire the sunshine. Right, and some and chairmen are clutching their foreheads. Well, I've got a few in, good ones uh, in there. In unison. So, look, uh, let's not go through all of your no, questions, but no, no, no. give me the highlight. Well, well, what's the what's well, the number one highlight well, of your questions? Of those ones, with Magellan, it's obviously the sort of the Hamish Douglas, he's gone, Chris Mackay's gone, the share price has tanked. And what I've asked them is, apparently, if they pay out all their director and executive loans, which are out of the money... They'll cop an FBT bill of $50 million. So I'm just saying to them, it's ridiculous that your past chairman, Brett Cairns, owes the company $4 million in debt, out of the money debt, when he's, he's, he's left. Because they've got these crazy company-funded loans for these executive incentive schemes that Hamish Douglas put together, which was stupid. So morale is down. Everyone's worrying about losing their houses. You know, it's a shocking scheme. And I'm just saying to them, look, just pay it out, cop the tax bill and move on because it affects morale and it's just bad governance. And yeah, so that's that's quite interesting. And then it's Steadfast, which is the insurance broker. They had a bit of a dodgy placement, so I've had a go at them with that. But my favourite one is, you know, insurance brokers. They've got a reputation for long lunches, back scratching, commissions, corporate entertainment. So come on, Frank O'Halloran, Mr. QBE legend. Have you fix the culture you know how many female insurance brokers have you got up there and how many corporate boxes have you still got because that industry is notorious if there's one industry which is notorious for the long lunch who you know bloke bloke private school system it's insurance brokers. Do, uh, do you have any basis on which to accuse steadfast whole industry of of long lunches no 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 i'm just i'm just asking you're just asking the asking, question i'm just i'm just moved? asking the question has the culture moved and with transurban my favourite question at Transurban is, how the hell do you still get away with paying no corporate tax? I mean, they're worth $60 billion. They make a fortune. They pay out billions in distributions unfranked each year because they're a trust. 
and they're still paying no tax. They're still working through all these tax losses because they've got ridiculously oversized depreciation claims and they've got a $20 billion debt all to these specific toll road assets. So they max out the leverage to get the tax deductibility of the interest and then they have massive depreciation claims and continue reporting statutory losses whilst deluging their shareholders with billions of dollars of unfranked distribution. So how the hell can you get away with still not paying any corporate tax, which you haven't done for decades? That's being read out hopefully right now, Alan. <laughs> Lindsay Maxted, farewell AGM Well, for I him. look forward farewell in two weeks' Lindsay. time of getting their answer because I think that's a decent question. That's right. And the only one I'm going to mention is, is I did go to the Endeavour Group AGM the other day and they are um, the biggest pokies operators spun out of Woolworths. And what amazed me there was that Bruce Matheson's son, so Bruce Matheson is the pokies billionaire mogul, his son, Bruce Matheson Jr., has been on the board, has been a CEO of their pokies division for a decade. And on June the 28th, he resigned as CEO to become a non-executive director. Four months later, he's still waiting for regulatory approval. And I'm going, what sort of a joke is Australian gambling regulation that a bloke can be the CEO of the biggest pokies operator in the country for a decade, as if you don't know him, you know, who is this bloke? And then he says, I want to go on the board as a non-executive director. He can't for four months because they're checking out who this bloke is. I mean, he's been there for a decade. <laughs> anyway, enough of me ranting. What have you got? What do you want to talk about? Oh, well, uh, what do I want to talk about? Oh, I want to ask you, before I get on to uh, other topics, you, you've been a close observer of Rupert Murdoch and uh, News Corp over the years. Why are they, why are they re-merging Fox and News Corp? I think it just simplifies the succession so that Rupert's now 91. He's bored, having got divorced yet again, so he's gone back to work because he's no longer playing with Mick Jagger's ex. Um, so he's gone back to work and he, he's 91. He wants to sort out the, the succession. And two chessboards is more complicated than one. So I think he wants to put it together so that Lachlan has a straightforward inheritance when the time comes. Um, and he also gets to spill both boards and Lachlan gets to choose who he wants, or Lachlan and Rupert get to choose who they want to be their non-executive so-called independent directors because they put on a whole bunch of new directors when they demerged 10 years ago. Some of them could have gone rogue. Some of them could be asking rude questions. Some of them could be expressing concern about the $1.5 billion of salary that the Murdoch men have taken out of public companies since 2000. So get rid of them. So they can spill, they go. spill the boards and pick whoever they want to be the compliance non-executive directors for the next 20 years under under probably non-executive chairman Lachlan. I don't think Lachlan wants to be a permanent full-time CEO. I think he prefers the high life. So he wants to be the controlling chair and have a CEO under him. And I think that's why they're doing it. And it will be quite complicated because how do they do the non-voting shares versus the voting shares? Which sets of shareholders have to approve it? Because the, non, the, the independent shareholders get to vote both sets. So it has to be a 50-50 a, a nil premium sort of deal. But how do you get the non-voting gerrymander across into the new entity? Do you call it News Corp or Fox Corp? Do you have it listed on the ASX or not? There could be some foreign ownership issues, license issues. So I think this will be more complicated than they're thinking. And the whole thing is happening just for a succession from one old bloke to his eldest son. What do you think? 
Uh, oh, well, it sounds right to me. I mean, uh, I personally don't understand why the bloke, uh, 91-year-old, doesn't give up. You know, talk about, talk about wanting the high life and all that stuff. I mean, why doesn't he just... Right off into the distance. Well, he wants, he wants to outlast the Queen. So he and the Queen both got the gig in 1952 when their fathers unexpectedly died. And she's done seven months more than him. So he needs to do another seven months and he'll be the world's longest serving, high profile institutional leader. So once he knocks off the Queen for length of service, I think he might slow down a bit. But they'll probably take him out with the boots on like the Queen. Might slow down a bit. Yes. <laughs> Now, what about, speaking uh, uh, of the Queen, what about Britain and the chaos over there? You, well, I, Trussonomics, that was a nice line on the news this week that you used. Trussonomics, yeah, well, that's what they're calling it, and uh, it was a complete debacle, obviously. Um, uh, Quasi Quartin is gone. Liz Truss appears to be a, um, uh, what's this, what you, would you say, a completely uh, decapitated leader, Jeremy Hunt's running the government. Lame duck leader. So, I think the, a lot of people are thinking about what are the lessons for Australia out of what's gone on there, and, and obviously one of the lessons is don't uh, don't have unfunded tax cuts, which is what caused the trouble to begin with. But I think the broader issue is that the markets are pretty um, uh, pretty savage with incompetence. Really, yeah. I mean, what, what the what the British government showed was incompetence basically, and what really is required. Uh, in Australia, finally, is some competence, I think, and that's really, uh, you know, what what um, what Jim Chalmers needs to do with the budget next week show basic, fundamental competence. But it also means that the Brits no longer have the reputation or the economic scale or balance sheet um, to be given a blank check by the credit markets. So they tried to, to come up with a reckless blank check solution, blowing out their debt, and good old-fashioned, you know, financial discipline, you've got to pay your debts back, kicked in. The bond vigilantes came out there, sent a message via a, a run on the pound and a spike of interest rates. She's a right-wing Brexiteer, elected on a popularity contest of low tax cuts and has run head, head, headlong into financial reality. So I'm glad she's now a lame duck leader um, and they've now got a, a Remainer, a moderate sensible markets driven Remainer in Jeremy Hunt in charge and the only flaw is that they can't punt Liz Trust for another 11 months because of the rules of the Tory party where stupidly the members get to pick the leader, they made a bad choice and then stupidly the rules let, don't let the, the MPs sack the leader for a year. So it's poor system design in the Tory yes, government say that. and poor leadership selection. Keir, Keir Starmer, the Labor leader, had a nice joke last night in Parliament uh, where he said he um, he believed that there's a book being written about Liz Truss's time in office and it'll be out by Christmas. And he wanted to know whether that's the publication date or the title. <laughs> Which I thought was... A, he's very was good generally at a good joke. I, good joke. I think he's going to be a very good... I mean, Britain's in decline. Um, you know, we, we've got to get rid of them as our head of state. You know, Keir Starmer's presiding over a, a, a diminished empire. But uh, he looks good. And after 12 years, governments get tired. That's the beauty of democracy. Bad third, fourth, fifth term governments, by definition, become corrupt, lazy and incompetent and, and victims of their own history. They can't fix up their own mistakes. So you've got to switch sides. And Keir Starmer looks like the right man. It just can't happen soon enough. So before we get on to questions, I just, just want to say something about the floods, which is uh, basically a column I had in the New Daily this morning. 
Um, uh, talking about the need for climate change mitigation, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of money going that needs to be spent on trying to prevent climate change as a part of Australia's joining in the global effort. One of the and, and the main thing is re, rebuilding the entire electricity system in the country. All of the wires need to be replaced. The government's kind of uh, aware of that, and they've kind of are setting up a fund to do that. But what they're not doing is um, focusing sufficiently, in my view, on dealing with the uh, effects of climate change, obviously, which are the floods. Um, now, there are apparently, this surprised me, there are apparently a million homes in Australia that are built on floodplains. Uh, We've got a few in Manningham. Something close to 15,000 towns and suburbs in the country are on floodplains. And, and that reflects a combination of incompetence and corruption. As a local government minister, uh, councillor, I will admit to this, is that floodplain land is cheap. So you, if you're a developer, you buy it up because it's cheap. You then got to persuade some politicians or bureaucrats to turn the other, other cheek, look away in terms of giving a permit to build inappropriate housing on a floodplain. Uh, and too much of it has been corruptly done over the years. Absolutely, that's and right. And now it's very hard to actually... I mean, we tried flood mapping in Manningham five years ago and we had like 10,000 people up in arms about the possibility of putting overlays on properties because we were going to affect their property prices. So we abandoned it and instead promised to spend $10 million on drainage. And we need to spend about a billion on drainage if we're going to make all of them safe. So we're doing it again now, but the data was a bit dodgy back then. So we're doing it again now, but it's political hot potato because the moment you start putting overlays on people's properties saying you're a risk of flood, you, you, the property price falls, they can't insure it, they get angry and political pressure is brought to yeah. bear to not do it. Yeah, so there's a real problem. In 2012, uh, Roma was flooded and after that, the people in Roma were unable to get uh, insurance for their houses. And so the governments had to step in, build a levy around Roma, which they did, cost $26 million. And um, now the residents of Roma can get uh, insurance. And so uh, at a simple level, you could say, well, there needs to be a whole lot of levies built yeah. in this country. I mean, the problem we with levies... We need to spend billions on levies, not just have a tube well, of residents uh, doing a stopgap levy, if, you know. If the, if the price of a levy around a town is $26 million, which is probably the low end of what's required because Roma is such a small town... The cost of uh, the cost of doing it around the country is, you know, half a trillion dollars. Well, no, but the five hundred billion dollars. The combined I mean, capital improved value of all buildings in Roma will be well north of a billion dollars. Like it's amazing. I mean, Manningham at sixty billion in one little one thirtieth of Melbourne. It's amazing no, but, the but value somebody's of land got to, buildings. Somebody's got to pay for the levy, right? Yeah, that's right. But what I'm saying is, is your alternative is what to bulldoze the town or have floods every five years? No, I get years it, or, of course. Um, yeah. uh, there, there so twenty six million is a cheap investment absolutely. to absolutely to, to, to flood proof an established settlement of thousands that's right. of people. Oh, what I'm saying is the government is going on about the trillion dollars of debt all the time, so the government's not going to do it. There's hundreds of billions of dollars the of, of got levies 4. to be built. Poms trillion dollars of debt. I they agree. can easily spend half a so trillion on levies. I agree that they, that's what they should do. They should borrow the money and build yeah, the levies. Correct. And, and put up property taxes. Property taxes are ridiculously cheap in Australia. Do you know you have to live more than 700 years in Manningham to pay the value of your house in rates? Average house is 1.2 million. Rates are 18.50. Rates should be three or four thousand. So you could easily fund a massive levy construction program by having higher rates. Typical grasping local councillor 
We're no. capped now. We Give can't us more rates. We can't put the rates yeah. up because of politically popular oh, state governments capping bastards. our revenue raising you opportunities. Know, and then you, for, then you in Burundi, where you, you are, it's twenty five hundred. So you're already copying excessive rates. For I know. People. And then they and they're wasting eighty million on a new pool for you in ECQ. That's a ridiculous. But they've got four point one billion of assets. Your council, so they're very asset rich, and they can afford to spend eighty million on an indulgent pool. Well, there was pool. a pool in ECQ. They've, they've just they've, if eighty million dollars, what down. a waste of money that is. Yeah. Well, I'm not disagreeing. I don't live anywhere near it, so it's fine with me. Don't have it. Um, now, now, questions. questions. <laughs> they said in unison. They said nervously. Yes, what have we not got? Done enough research. What have we got this week? So Alex is asking about the franking credits system, saying he's basically saying that wouldn't it make more sense for the Commonwealth Bank just to pay unfranked dividends because. Somehow you, you, there's an interest-free loan involved because you only get to claim the franking credit after June 30 when you put your tax return in. And Alex, I'm just going to say at the outset that I don't think this is this is right. I think our franking credit system is is good. It works well. It just gives companies a massive incentive to pay out maximum dividends. And the problem with that is it leaves them over leveraged because they get as much out the door as possible. So whenever they need to do a transaction to buy something, they have to raise fresh capital. Um, but if you want to focus on the franking credit system, the rort is the cash top-ups for the low-tax types, which Bowen tried to fix, lost the election because of it. So it's a beautiful system. If you can get in on the giggles, stay with it. And uh, I wouldn't be advocating for people paying unfranked dividends anytime soon. Oh, CBA. CBA's got all these unfranked... These all these franking credits, uh, which are a shareholder asset. Of Correct, course, they're, of they're, they they're shareholder assets. They get them into the hands of the people who can use it because the company can't use it. That's right. It just sits on the balance sheet. So they have to pay. They have to do it. I think it's that's right. Yes. Thorab says, um, long time listener. Thanks for your insights. Uh, read in your weekend briefing, Eureka highlights uh, by, about buying bonds. How does one buy bonds? Several corporate bonds available on the bond exchange website, like Marks and Spencer, Rolls Royce, giving five to seven percent per annum return are they any good and what's the risk to the capital well the the way you buy bonds in australia is um basically etfs on the asx yeah there are several bond etfs on the asx and you can also buy bank hybrids which are bond like which are, and, which are like bonds. and have franking credits because the, the key problem with bonds is that you don't get any franking credits whereas I mean, the, the banks have come up with these hybrids where you get franking credits and a bond like yeah, and the good and the well, the good thing about a, a bank hybrid is that the the um, interest rates are generally floating. Yes. So as interest rates go up, you get the benefit of higher interest rates. Yes. Um, there just can be a bit of uncertainty about the the what happens at, at, the, at the closure end. date, yeah. conversion to shares. That's what if right. the stock is tanked? Yeah, so you are taking equity risk. Whereas with a bond, you get a hundred cents in the dollar back at a fixed date. It's a very certain arrangement. So with um, corporate bonds. Um, uh, of which there's, you know, there's a lot in Australia. The, the ones you've mentioned are English ones, obviously, Marks and Spencer and Rolls Royce. But um, there are a lot of corporate bonds in Australia which you can buy uh, through a stockbroker. Yeah, but it's, it's um, sort of market making, big spreads, uh, yeah, lack of liquidity. It's not, it's not like New Zealand, and that's because of franking credits. It just doesn't work to to buy unfranked bonds, and it's just it, it, it needs to be fixed up. The ASX needs to get a decent functioning retail bond market going. 
uh, with government bonds and corporate bonds, but for some reason they haven't been able to get it going. No, that's right. Well, there's not a lot of interest in it. No, and, and so, Reb, I just wouldn't uh, be careful uh, buying uh, Marks and Spencer or Rolls-Royce because you're taking currency risk, you're punting on trustonomics. Um, so if we were looking at bonds, I'd be going beyond uh, some marquee uh, UK brands yeah, at this right. point in time with uh, the palms okay. teetering. Your turn. James says, hi, Alan. Hi, Alan has shown a chart a few times of this bear market compared to the previous amalgamated bear markets. It was very cool. I was hoping you could share the link. Last week, you said Tim can gift the shares to his wife. There is no stamp duty, you said. That's an issue. It counts as a sale for capital gains tax, though. That's the issue. Just if you want to mention it this week. Is he right? I think that's correct, that there can be capital gains tax when you switcheroo to your wife. Yeah, of course. The only safe switcheroos with your family are divorce, no taxes on divorce, and inheritance, no taxes on inheritance. Otherwise, you normally cop some sort of a stamp duty or a, sale or a capital gains tax. Yes. Depending he on the price. He wants to say hi to his brother-in-law, Paul. Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. <laughs> now, Ian, I'm going to ask this because you've, you've been doing very diligent research. Ian says... I must say, I do mind a good hot chocolate like James. Do you gents know much about the new energy solar breakup? It seems there is 82 cent capital return coming quite soon and an amount to be confirmed of between 13 and 16 cents to come towards the end of 2023. They are trading around 98.5 cents at the moment. Is there any reason to wait 12 months or more when I could sell on market? What am I missing? Uh, you're missing, Ian, you're missing the currency effect, which is that when they announced this... Um uh, uh, when they announced this sale of their their U US uh, solar panel businesses, um, uh, the Australian dollar was 69 cents to, uh, to the US. It's now 62 or three. Um, so um, every time it, the Australian dollar falls a bit, the return, the proceeds in Australian dollars increases. And so the reason that the shares are currently 99 cents, not 98 and a half, they're 99 cents, is because of that. The proceeds from the sale of their US assets are in US dollars, and when they're converted um, at some time in the future, uh, it'll be... Um, so uh, it, uh, deciding what you do now, whether to sell on the market at 99 cents or wait for the capital returns, is basically a punt on the currency. Yeah. And, and it's so very rare that those sort of opportunities ever sit there blatantly because there will always be hedge funds who will be taking the arbitrage if it's there. The only one I can remember that actually worked was, remember when CSR's offshoot Rinker about 15 years ago got bought by a Mexican company called CMIX and they were offering a certain Aussie dollar rate for the first 35000 or some sort of a retail play and you could literally keep buying 40 grand's worth and selling it for a $2,000 profit because of the currency play. And the, So I did it two or three times. So it's, I know people, exactly I know people the sort of thing you would times. do. <laughs> yeah, but it's very rare you get an arbitrage where it's better to sell on market than wait for the corporate play. Although I say that being a very unhappy shareholder in Link where for months I was sitting there going, do I take the profit? No, I'll keep the stock to annoy them at the scheme meeting. And then the scheme gets abandoned. Diane Durham walks away. The share price is halved. And I'm wishing I'd sold out on market when the shares were double what they are now. But instead, I wanted to annoy them at the AGM. And so I've copped a $300 loss. Thank you very much, Link. Right. 
Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, hello, Alan, and howdy to the Manningham Cowboy. That's great. I'm going to call you the Manningham <laughs> Cowboy from now on. <laughs> Um, there needs to be a song about that. I have a question regarding interest rate increases. Given that raising interest rates won't end the war in Ukraine any sooner or fix up international supply chains but will cause people to default on their mortgages at a higher rate, is there a possibility that so many people go bankrupt before the rate of inflation goes down that it becomes unpalatable for the government? If so, what steps could the government take? Uh, well, yeah, it's possible. But it won't <laughs> Unlikely. Hap- it won't happen. No, it won't because, happen. Because as soon as rates start maxing out and people start going bankrupt, then, then they'll stop increasing them and then they'll cut them to stop people going bankrupt. So, It is, look, it, it, um, it is possible that they need to, if, if, if inflation persists, they might need to actually keep going. And they might. So, look, I mean, you wouldn't rule it out entirely. Yeah, yeah. But the banks have been fairly disciplined in how they lend. So I don't think you're going to get people getting sold up from their houses. You might get negative equity, but it will be manageable because unemployment is so low, you can still work and 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 service the mortgage. And to be honest, Jeremiah, defaults have more to do with the unemployment rate than interest rates. Correct. So it really has to do with how many people kept their job because if you keep your job, you can keep your house usually. That's why I find all this talk about the recession in Australia and the US ridiculous because this massive... Uh, labour shortages. I mean, recessions do not involve labour shortages. Recessions involve double-digit unemployment rates. So this is no, the no, most no, happy, no. happy full employment recession-type discussion. It I've has ever to seen. do with the amount of increase in unemployment, not necessarily the yeah. the uh, the end yeah. point. Yeah, but you never have a recession when you've got hundreds of thousands of job vacancies that can't be filled, which is what the US, Australia, but and many it, other markets are but currently enjoying. It's also enjoying. the case that unemployment has never gone up more than. Uh, never gone up one and a half percent without a recession. Yes, and so uh, and that seems to be what the uh, the predictions, if not the aim of the exercise, are. Yes. Anyway, your turn. Okay, so OP says, love the show and your regular guests, Stephen and James. My scenario: my wife and I are in our mid forties and have an SMSF with a residential property. The mortgage investment loan is not large, around 150k. However, with regular interest rate increases, the rate has tipped to over 5.5% per annum. My monthly rent once comfortably paid for interest and principal repayments with plenty of room for other expenses such as land tax, estate agent fees and the monthly SMSF fees. My question, my wife and I have our own industry super funds where our employers pay the super. Would it be wise, given the current environment, to roll over monies from these accounts into our SMSF and pay down the mortgage now to save on the interest charges? Mid to long term, we hope to use the majority of the rent to roll back into our industry funds. It's unusual to have material industry fund and SMSF plays rolling. A lot of people tend to be sort of, you know, one or the other types. That's right. So what do you reckon, Alan? Well, uh, I mean, you know, this is personal advice here. I can't really... Yeah, we can't do that. Can't really give it. We do it badly too, don't we? So... um, Oh, we do. You wouldn't want to listen to us. No, that's right. So, look, (laughs) I'd support paying down debt in this environment. Yes. And in fact, I would support switching out of residential property into shares. On the whole, uh, unless you might have missed it, might have missed the boat for that. No, it's come off a bit too much already. Residential property is going nowhere for five or ten years. Yeah, but it's already fallen ten percent, and you should have sold out six months ago. It's too late. Well, it hasn't fallen ten percent. It's going to fall twenty percent, according yeah, to many okay. predictors. Yeah, and okay. we're sort of down five percent now. So get out while the getting's good. I say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, that, that's, well, that's what that's, I did. But but put it on the market with a set price but not as a forced seller. If you get our price you're happy with, take it and run. If not, be, be happy to hang on. I reckon that's the way to do it. Sure. 
Okay. Mike. Mike says, uh, the podcast is a great antidote to social media shrieking. I shriek. Oh, I've got 40,000 followers on Twitter. I'm shrieking all day on that platform. You are. Anyway. You're, you're not very active. Why are you so quiet on Twitter these days? You're so busy with your 10 other I'm jobs. Busy. I'm busy. Yeah. You've got a real I mean, job. I look at some people, they sit there tweeting all day. I, think, I know. That's, that's me. On? In between annoying a few people at AGM. I can't understand it. I can't. I've worked from home for 21 years now. I'm too busy to do nice. that. Yeah. I tweet a, every now and again. You've got several real jobs. I know, but I've got 138,000 followers. followers. Yeah, without even trying. You're such <laughs> exactly. a brand. I've, been try- I've done 100,000 tweets and I've still got only a third of what you've got. There you are. Anyway, back to Mike. I bought with a 15% deposit. I always was I was aware I would struggle to refinance due to LMI. What's LMI? That's mortgage insurance. Oh, yeah, right. Until I got to 80% LVR. But with the predicted home price falls, this is likely to affect me for longer. I understand that LMI is not an insurance policy that covers the buyer. But do you think this needs some reform as more people are pushed into mortgage prison through falling prices? Either being able to transfer the LMI or prorated refund terms that make sense... Seems like an easy win. Just feels like a cash cow for the insurance companies in its current form, and the likelihood of them having to pay out is higher if people can't refinance, right? Even if this pushed LM initial. And some mortgage broker will be oh, having right. a long lunch, you know, back scratching away while as they do, as they do as while they do while they're worrying about your mortgage prison making a new commission. I agree with Mike that mortgage insurance portability would be a good reform. Every time you roll over your mortgage to a new provider. Why should you have to renegotiate a new mortgage insurance arrangement that makes the bank feel comfortable? If you've been given mortgage insurance once, you should be able to put that in your backpack and take it anywhere you like in the market. Yeah, well, so the mortgage is a standard product. It's not like, yeah. I mean, every house is different, but mortgages are the yeah. same. So yeah. that's fair enough. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good suggestion, but there'd be a lot less brokerage and commissions for our friends in the insurance broking industry, so they would be dead against it. They, they, love, have, they love the churn of they customers They'd have to, they'd have, to have short lunches. Short lunches, that's right, which would be a good thing. So James says, just wondering about borrowing money at home loan rates. First, if I paid my home loan off a few years ago but didn't discharge the mortgage, can I refinance that loan, for example, if I now wanted to borrow money to renovate my home? Secondly, I can't see why the purpose of the loan is relevant if someone is happy to fulfil the other home loan requirements. The banks make profits from home loans, pushing people into other forms of loans with higher interest rates just because the borrower wants to use the money for another purpose, such as renovating, seems like profit gouging. I agree, James. The biggest regret I have is selling Crikey for a million dollars and paying off the home loan entirely. I should have paid it down to $1 and kept the home loan because for the last decade, I've been on expensive credit card, overdraft rates, Comsec margin loan rates because the missus won't let me mortgage the home. And I should have kept that, that line of credit through the home loan open and had the flexibility of drawing up and down on that you need to capital be, raising. You need to be more persuasive with your missus. Well, she doesn't listen to this, thankfully, but uh, no, she's a good <laughs> conservative Italian and we can't have any debt at all. So I don't there even tell her about the margin loan. Thankfully, she doesn't know about that. <laughs> anyway, what do you reckon about, um, about effectively, everyone should be able to max out their home loan to use for business and every other of form of credit. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the great Australian I story of I, finance. I, 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 turned, I made my home loan into a a portfolio facility. Yeah. Uh, um, sold some assets recently, paid the home loan down, but not entirely. Not entirely. Very clever. I mean, Australia is just basically, that's the story of Australia, is housing bubble, 
giant mortgage mortgage uh, uh, building societies called banks that make a fortune lending safely to overpriced houses, which finances every small business in the country because none of our banks ever go non-recourse, actually taking real risk on business. No, that's they right. They always just go and grab the poor poor bloke or per, or lady's uh, home before they'll lend them any money. So Jim's got an interesting question. It seems to me he says that Joe Aston has had a big 12 months or so in terms of his rear window columns. My question is why isn't there more of this type of business journalism in other publications when it comes to calling out the Australian business community for poor, for, for poor performance, behaviour, etc.? His recent columns on Qantas, Deloitte, Access Economics, Lazily Modelling and so on have been really on point. Look. Well, the answer is uh, um, he's an exceptional... Uh, journalist, yeah, and he's best, uh, of, he's they, best of breed. He's had a he's had a good the other, he's had a big ten years. Not a big ten, not a big. Year. I, I had a big ten weeks as rear window editor, <laughs> and I resigned to Kamikaze against Jeff Kennett. But, but, but uh, he's papers, lasted a decade. But all the other papers have tried. They all come up. They all do these columns that try to yeah. copy rear window. Yeah, I think the the one in the the uh, nine papers is CBD on page two. Yeah, but it's not written by and business the one in journalists. The, 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 two, that, the two doing it now are not business journalists. No, that's it's more true. politics and business. There's, the one in the Australian is Margin Call. Yep. Um, that's okay. So they that, all try. They, they, they compete pretty well, Margin Call. Yeah, but Joe Chris Aston, Lacey's a good But, good but also, the other people who write uh, Rear Window, uh, Michael Rodden and uh, Miriam. Yeah, um, Miriam's on uh, maternity leave again. Oh, yeah, but, okay. Um, so, but anyway, they're, they're okay, but, but Joe, Joe Aston uh, stands out. Yeah, he's just, he's just the best. I mean, he's the nastiest. He's brutal. He's the nastiest. Uh, and he has the, I actually recommend his his life experience includes being a, 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 a PR man for Joe Hockey and a corporate PR man. I think it was Emirates or some foreign airline. So he's seen it on all sides of the fence. You're a much better journo if you've also been a PR person and you've seen politics, in my view. Um, just like you're a better journalist for having spent a year as James Capel's head of strategy. You've six seen months. Six months. Six months. <laughs> That's more than I did on Rear Window, which was ten weeks. Uh, ten weeks, yes. Well, uh, six months and I ran away. <laughs> Back to the safety of journalism <laughs> where you can just pontif- pontificate without consequences. Exactly. And I didn't have to sit across the, the tables from these, these, fund ma- these fund managers who just crucified me. <laughs> Jesus, that was shocking. <laughs> I'm still. What were you paid for that for that role? Was it big, big dollars back in the day? In uh, the well, I won't 90s? go into the actual dollars, but but they offered me double what I was on. I was wow. running Shonaclear at the time. You got Shonaclear doubled. Wow! And they came and said, uh, "We'll double, you know, whatever you run, we'll double it." Right. Wow! So I went back to the Fin Review and said, "Listen, uh, I don't particularly want to do this, but all you have to do is go halfway." And you they d- wouldn't. They wouldn't go halfway. They're such tight. They're, they're, they, didn't to, they didn't have to match it. They didn't have to match halfway. the doubling. They only had to give me see, a 50% see, pay rise. See, Joe Aston's on close to half a million, apparently. Um, half a million? Apparently, because he's so good and people keep trying to poach him. But you have to threaten to leave to get the rise. Uh, John Drury was second, I think, in Australia of the corporate journos, and they, they retrenched him at the Oz because he was too expensive. Yeah. So that's the problem is when you go up that high, you also become sackable because you're a big cost Quite. save. Well, yes. Anyway, but, I'm... Um, um, so I had to leave. I had to go and do it because for my family. Well, I, I was on 105000 as the um, as rear window. So in 1999, I haven't been on that That's ever good since. money. That was good money in 1999. I walked Crikey. after 10 weeks to try and knock, knock off Jeff Kennett stupidly. You should, have, um, you should have done better at it. Well, I tried to get my job back. Uh, and when I was ineligible to run against Jeff, they wouldn't let me have it because I'd sledged them on the internet. And uh, I've been well, that was a very bad career since. move. Like every other career move, mate. You have made Tell my a poor long-suffering su- long wife. You've made a succession. Thank God she's a barrister doing well. 
Anyway, <laughs> we've got Andrew saying, really enjoy the show. Thanks. Regarding Fortescue Future Industries, what is your opinion on its future? Will it split from FMG? And if so, will it be in five months, five years or longer? And if you thought it has potential, would it be the best strategy to buy FMG now or wait for the split? Well... Let's not hold back, Alan. I think it is a ridiculous indulgence of Twiggy Forrest, this hydrogen play. He owns 30% of the company and he's dragging the other 70% into something that they didn't ask for, they're not interested in, and they shouldn't be getting exposed to. He should be doing this. He's worth $25 billion. He should be doing it off his own balance sheet, uh, not through the public company that he controls with a minority well, I half, stake. I half agree and half disagree with you. I think that... Uh, I th actually think it's a fantastic uh, project, Fortescue Future Industries. I think that, uh, I think he's right to think that hydrogen is going to be possibly the world's biggest industry um, before too long, and you need to get into it now. Uh, but I agree that um, it should be separate. Good. It should be it should be separated now. So Twiggy's a legendary, so a legendary should... visionary, but he should be doing it off his own dime. Well, not just that. I mean, if he wants to have a public company to do it, that's fine. Yeah, float it off. Float it off. Yeah. And get people to invest in it. Yeah. Uh, and support yeah. his vision. That's fine. Because it doesn't have much Go to do, do with, that. Doesn't have much to do with iron ore, does it? Well, a little bit. A little bit, but not, not enough. Sense. No, not but, enough. But I think that there is a there is a case for it, which is that iron ore needs to change. Iron ore needs to become. Uh, well, the, the the making of steel needs to become um, uh, carbon free. Mm. And and. The way to do that is with hydrogen. Yeah. So we'd better get the coal price down quickly, wouldn't it? Which we need. Well, yeah. Well, sure. Um, they need to. They need to use hydrogen mm. to um, green steel in the, in the blast furnaces. So yeah, yeah I mean, that's true. I think All right. Well, we're probably, for that. we're probably over time. I want to go back and find out how my forty-seven questions went at five online AGMs over the last three hours. That'll so, be good. Uh, I'm looking forward yeah, to hearing about that. Know, hopefully, they put up transcripts or webcasts. But when they're embarrassed, they often don't. Anyway. Thanks, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe. Thanks to Stephen Main for making the trick trek down from Manningham to Hawthorne. Uh, I'll be back next week with James Thompson, who will be making the trek from Mitcham. <laughs> so <laughs> send in your questions and we'll answer it together. Email it to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm Stephen Main, the Manningham cowboy. See you in a fortnight.